Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. All right, for the past few weeks, we've been reading from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and as I've told you, not necessarily a sermon series, but just uh, sticking with these New Testament lessons here as we prepare for Lent. And so today we continue. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long chapter, uh, and it's so rich. And so today we're reading from verses 35 through 49. <clears throat> if you've been here the last few weeks or watching online or worshiping online, uh, you will recognize some overlap. Um, but I hope you also see that each week we're doing something a little bit different, or rather Paul's doing something a little bit different. And so today from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35, uh, the words are on the screen, in your bulletin, or certainly we'd welcome you to turn there uh, in your own Bible. Hear these words of Scripture. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another." There's one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory of the stars. Indeed, the stars differ from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body and raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. And thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. Our second lesson comes from the Gospel according to Luke. I'm going to preach on 1 Corinthians 15, but I really like for us to have a little bit of Jesus each Sunday too, uh, and this is some of Jesus' most well-known and challenging teaching. So from the Gospel according to Luke in verse 27. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If, those who love you, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will forgive. And give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed, <coughs> pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, <coughs> for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. 
This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanksgiving for the opportunity to be together today, whether we are worshiping here in the building with one another, worshiping online. We are united by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. And we gather with thanksgiving as we receive again the blessing and the joy, the opportunity uh, to be here and to be with one another, to have, as our scriptures teach, to have our hearts knit together and lifted up, to be in your presence as we sing and gather around your word and fellowship. And so we ask now that you would speak through me, perhaps, or that perhaps you would set me aside, but however it may be, that you would speak to these, your people, that they might know you, that they might grow to follow you more closely. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of the body. I hope you've seen that already. And I, and I brought this silly skeleton image with sunglasses to sort of lighten the mood a little bit. Is that okay? Yay, resurrection of the body. 1 Corinthians 15 is a hard chapter in the Bible to read, and it's probably the one that people have the most questions about when they think about their own life, right? That Luke passage I read, that's hard to do right? But it's not hard to understand, right? Love your enemies, care for those who curse you, right? Do good to those who don't do good to you, right? We, we understand that. It may be hard to accomplish it, but we understand it. This resurrection of the body and stuff is sort of hard to understand, right? And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of questions surrounding what happens when we die and what happens uh, with our bodies and what will it be like afterwards, you know, in the next life. And so we're going to try to talk about that a little bit today, uh, and we're going to try to do, tho- do so with the, with the help of, of Paul, all right, so to begin, I'll offer you this kind of image. Um, there's a preacher and, and author, Sam Wells, uh, and he says that there are many strategies uh, for having a good life. There are many strategies for having a good life, uh, and they go something like this. Like one strategy for having a good life is what he calls solidarity with self, right? Solidarity with self. And if we were practicing solidarity with self, we would do all we could uh, to create a good life for ourselves, Right? And so we would try to, to live in such a way that allows us to receive training or education, that allows us to work toward a job or a career, that allows us to make a, a comfortable amount of income. We have a nice home. We have the things we need. We have good health care, good health insurance, and so on. Right? We live in a way that, that allows us to be successful and to be comfortable. Right? We might call that the American dream, right? This is sort of the idea, right? That you chart your course and that you make decisions that create a good and comfortable life for yourself, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? In fact, many of us do that for the most part, right? We're trying to make decisions that help to take care of ourselves as best as possible, right? The other option that Wells says is there's a, a way of living that we might call solidarity with others, right? And so I'm not only living, you know, to take care of myself, but I'm living out of concern for others, right? And that could be the others that are around me, like my close family, my spouse, my children, my parents, right? But it could be more broadly the people in my community, that I'm living a life that I'm hoping shapes my community and my region, my state, so that other people will have a good life as well, right? And we might even take that more broadly. I'm living so that all people in the world, right, would have a better life. I'm working toward justice and peace. I'm, I'm concerned for the poor or for minorities and their outcomes in the world, right? So that's a good thing, and we might think that many of us live in that way as well to differing degrees. The third layer, Wells says, is solidarity with all of creation, right? 
So I'm not just working toward a good life for myself. I'm not just working toward a better life for others. But I'm working toward the best life, the best outcome for all of creation, right? And so this is a little bit more mystical, sort of recognizing my small role in the grand cosmos and wanting the best outcome for not only myself and those close to me, but for for everything, for all beings, right? That we, would all tr- that we would all move toward this good future together. Now, those are all good ways to live, and probably we are all living in those ways to some degree or another. Certainly, I would say that about myself, right? I'm looking to take care of myself. I'm hoping to work toward the good of others and even have some sense of my role in the larger creation. Many of us are living in those ways. Those kind of mark the ways in which we live. However, there is one shortcoming with each of those ways, right? No matter how much we do for ourselves, no matter how good a life we create for ourselves, no matter how much we do for others, love of neighbor, care for the poor, no matter how much we're aware of creation and our role in it and what we should do for the good of creation, none of those ways of living really offers anything helpful when it comes to the end of our own life. There's nothing in living for myself or living for others or living for creation There's nothing in those ways of living that really has anything to say about death. About death. And so each of those, as fulfilling as they may be and as necessary as they may be, they're not necessarily problematic. They really can't answer the question, what happens when you die? And does it matter what happens when you die? And so here Wells offers a kind of Christian view that he calls solidarity with God. That solidarity with God, particularly the God revealed in Jesus Christ, is our only way of living that offers us some hope in answering the question, what happens when you die? And does it matter what happens when you die? So let's think about those four frames a little bit as we dig into today's scripture. First of all, as we've been reading 1 Corinthians 15, I hope you see that it is uh, dense and it is complicated, and, and that's why we've stretched it out over a few weeks here. It's not some chapter that can just be read sort of quickly and you can understand it, um, but it's also very rich and very beautiful and very helpful. And so I'm going to try to boil down uh, kind of what Paul is trying to get at, at least today's scripture. The first thing he says, and this goes with today's lesson, but goes with the other parts of 1 Corinthians 15, the first thing he says is when we think about life and death, and life after death, that Jesus is the prototype, right? Jesus is the prototype. That Jesus is the fullness of humanity revealed to us, that the way Jesus lived, caring for neighbor, the way in which he cared for the vulnerable, and the way in which he taught and loved, that Jesus is the fullness of humanity. In being the fullness of humanity, Jesus experienced death in the same way that we will experience death. But Jesus uniquely was empowered by God's Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God was breathed back into Jesus after his death, and he was given his body back to him, and he arose from the grave. So Paul's entire argument in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus is the prototype, that whatever happened to Jesus is what we can hope and expect to happen to us. Now, fast forward to the end of the Gospels a little bit. You know some of those stories. We typically read them in the few weeks following Easter. Jesus is risen, right, on Easter morning. And then we have a few stories where Jesus comes back and visits those who knew him, right? And if you remember, those stories are just a little bit weird. Like sometimes they can't quite recognize who Jesus is, but then they get closer or Jesus speaks and they say, oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus? Yeah, I think it's Jesus, right? 
So he does look like himself, but not entirely. Right, you remember that part? There's also stories in, in, at the end of the Gospels where Jesus, he sort of uh, just kind of comes in and out of rooms and buildings where the doors and windows are locked. Do you remember those stories? Right? So he looks like himself and he acts like himself, but he kind of has some new powers. Right? And you'll remember specifically where they, where they ask about his, his body. Right? Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I can touch the scars in his hand. And, and Jesus reveals himself in that way. So he's no longer hurting or bleeding, but the evidence of his death is still upon him, the, the wound in his side and the scars in his hand. So Paul imagines that whatever has happened to Jesus in the resurrection, that something similar is going to happen to us. Right? So that's kind of point B. That's sort of the whole thrust here in 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49. There will be a bodily resurrection. There will be a bodily resurrection. The challenge that Paul's writing toward in 1 Corinthians is not the idea of resurrection in general. People like the idea of life after death, right? People like the idea that their soul or their spirit goes on living. Paul is trying to, to widen, to deepen what they, what they think that means. And specifically, he says there will be a bodily resurrection. On earth, you had a physical body, and in the resurrection, you'll have a spiritual body. Now, what he means by spiritual isn't a sort of vaporous, misty, smoky sort of body. He means a spiritual body. It will be given life according to the Spirit, right? So right now you're living on air and food and oxygen and, and all that and exercise, but on the other side of death, you're going to live according to the power of God's Spirit, right? It'll be a spiritual body, not just a physical body. And of course, the, the other thing that, that Paul says, and we read this in other parts of the New Testament, is that we kind of stand between two, two worlds, the world of Adam, who was created in a particular way in Genesis, right? And he ate and breathed and walked among the land. And he calls him a, a man from earth. And the world of Jesus, who he calls a man from heaven. And he says, because Jesus has been, been put to death and resurrected, we're sort of going to move from the world of Adam to the world of Jesus. And we were born as sons and daughters of Adam, but in the resurrection we will be sons and daughters of Jesus. Right? So the old Adam and the new Adam, the new Jesus will be our way of being in the next life. Now the main image that Paul offers, and I think it's a really helpful image, the main image that Paul offers, you can tell that he's struggling just as I am this morning, right? How do you illustrate this? Like what's the example for the resurrection, right? Well, he says here's the best way to think about it. The best way to think about the resurrection is to think about seeds, right? Seeds. And you don't have to use your imagination long to think about the seeds that you have seen or dealt with in your life, right? Over here at our house in the parsonage on the corner on the neighbor's lot, there's a pecan tree. And so there on our carport and in our driveway, uh, there are pecans everywhere, right? And they fall every year. And we pick a few of them up and some people pick others up. And, but they're everywhere, right? Pecans are everywhere. If you go over on uh, Miss Samuel's lot here at the front corner of, of our house, uh, she has oak trees. And so there are acorns everywhere, right? You could go over to other parts of the, the area and you would find pine cones, right? Seeds for pine trees. You would find other smaller seeds that you have in your own home. I love to snack on sunflower seeds, right? Just a little sunflower seed. You might think of those little bitty, bitty seeds that you use in the spring for your flower gardens. They're tiny, right? Paul says when you think about the resurrection, when you think about your dying, you ought to think about it like a seed, right? It's a real physical, tangible thing. It goes down into the ground, and yet, through some miraculous transformation, 
it gives birth to this wonderful, beautiful, tall, powerful, elegant plan. Think about those little pecans that we all pick up that are all over our area, right? And how big and, 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 how big and brawny a pecan tree is. Think about a, an acorn, a little tiny acorn, and yet it gives birth to a big, strong oak tree. You could think about sunflower seeds, like I said, just a small seed, but then you can imagine a whole field of beautiful sunflowers. You could think about corn, or you could think about tomato seeds, or you could think about all sorts of seeds that they go into the ground, and through this transformation, they're given a new life, right? And in this new life, they're bigger and more beautiful and more robust and more powerful, and you never could have imagined that this seed would give birth to this big tree or this big plant, Paul says that's a really helpful image right, for thinking about your own death and resurrection. That in your dying, you're something like a seed, right? And in your resurrection, you're something like a, a new plant that comes to life. And the process in the middle is nothing less than God's spirit being poured out on your body and being given its life back over again but in a new and a glorious and beautiful and surprising and maybe a strange way. Paul is trying to get us to see that these small seeds can become big, beautiful, unlikely trees and plants. In fact, you'll remember that Jesus does this in the Gospels as well, right? He gives a little parable about a mustard seed, right? He says, just a little mustard seed of faith. And now we hear Paul kind of doing that same sort of thing. Just a small seed, can give birth to something new and beautiful and wonderful. And so when we're thinking about the resurrection, we need to think about something that is a glorious and transformed future. But it still involves our body in some way. The language that Paul uses is trying to get us to see right, that God will bring our bodies back to life instead of weakness, power, instead of dishonor, glory, instead of disease, strength that our bodies will be forever changed according to nothing less the very power that brought christ back from the dead this is paul's primary hope that because christ has been transformed in this way that we too at death will be transformed as well because christ is the fullness of humanity and christ has been raised then we too will be raised according to the way in which jesus received his resurrection now this, of course, will leave some questions. And maybe in your walking out of church this morning or in your car ride home or maybe as we talk in our Sunday school classes, you can think with me a little bit about some of these questions that Paul doesn't answer, right? And I'm not going to answer them for you either, but we'll think about them a little bit. The first question that Paul doesn't answer is like, how is it scientifically possible to take this dead and decaying body and to give it life again, right? Paul doesn't really tell us right he just says it happened to jesus in the tomb and it's going to happen to you as well and admittedly that is hard for our imaginations our modern scientific imaginations to see a body deceased and yet brought back to life the other thing that paul doesn't entirely explain is what will our bodies when they are resurrected when they are no longer corrupted by death or sin what will they look like what will they look like now, this is sort of a fun imaginative game, and you've probably thought about this as well. Like, like what are we going to look like on the other side of this life, right? 
One little thing that I think about sometime, and you may have this in your own self as well, I, I have a little scar behind my ear. It's a pretty big scar. It runs about the length of my ear. I've only seen it like a few times when someone takes a picture or if I can get in the mirror just right because I don't see it. It's behind my ear, right? And I always have to explain to a new barber. It's like, yeah, I know, there's a huge scar behind my ear, right? And I have that scar behind my ear because I had a big surgery when I was about five years old. I had something called a cholesteatoma, which is like a soft spot in your inner ear, and so they had to cut my ear open and go in and fix that. And it's pretty well repaired, and, and, it, and it's okay now. My hearing in my left ear is about 40% right? So when I put my earbuds in, they sound really good on my right side and this side, they sound a little muffled and a little weird. If you're sitting on my left side, I may not always hear you or I may just be ignoring you. You'll have to figure that out for yourself, right? Something I think about is like, what will that be like on the resurrection? Like, will my hearing be back to 100%, you know? Will I be able to hear everything? Maybe. That's kind of what happens to Jesus, like he's injured and yet those injuries are gone, but the scars are still there. So maybe I'll have all of my hearing, but I'll still have my scar. That's kind of what I think about these days. And you might think about that in your own life. Like, what will our bodies look like on the other side of the resurrection? Paul doesn't explain all of that to us. Another question that people wrestle with, of course, is when we're resurrected, when we're transformed, will we recognize one another, right? What will it be like when we see our spouses, our family, our friends, will we know one another in this resurrected state? And again, I think the stories of Jesus are really helpful, right? Those people who knew and loved Jesus recognized him after the resurrection, right? Now, they sometimes had to have some questions answered. They didn't know exactly who he was or what he was doing, but with a little help, they were able to put that, that together. So I sense the same will be true for us. One question people always ask is, will I see my dog in the resurrection, right? No one ever asks about cats. I don't know why that is. I'm just kidding. I know some of you like cats. I don't know about that one, right? Paul doesn't even get into animals here, right? He just talks about the resurrection of our bodies and what they'll look like. But I tend to think if animals were a good thing in this creation, that animals will be a good thing in the next creation as well. The other big question that people always ask about this, and it's a really good question, is like, when does this happen? Like, when does this resurrection thing happen? And again, the Bible is not entirely clear about this. I think the general thought in the New Testament is that there will be a future resurrection when Jesus returns right? That this new heaven and this new earth will come here and Jesus will return and, and we'll be resurrected in this new form, right? But we also can't deny, like when the thief is on the cross, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? Which indicates that maybe something happens immediately after death, right? And then maybe there's a future thing happening as well. I don't know. The Bible's not super clear on that. Whatever the case may be is that we know that our lives, as we live them, are fragile, we know that our lives are fragile, and we know they will all come to an end someday in some way. No matter our career, our income, our experiences, no matter how much we love our neighbor and work for the good of the world, our life will come to an end. And our only hope in something after death is, is what Wells calls solidarity with God. That knowing the God who brought Jesus back from the dead uh, has the same power to do that for us as well. Wow, okay. Holy Spirit is speaking to us here with these screens. So. Solidarity with God. Frederick Buechner is a wonderful preacher, and I often use this quote at funerals, and I thought I would share it with you today as a way to wrap up the sermon and, and kind of get at some of, of what, what Paul is saying. Frederick Buechner says it this way. Those, those who believe in the immortality of the soul believe that life after death is as natural a function as waking up from sleep. But the Bible speaks of resurrection. And that is unnatural. 
We do not go on living beyond our grave because that's how we're made. Rather, we go to our graves and then we are given our lives back again by God just as we were given them by God in the first place because that is the way that God is made. God, in spite of everything, prizes us enough to bring us back to life, not as an echo of the human beings, but a new and revised version that express all that we once were, our personalities, the way we looked, our voices, our peculiar capacity for creating and loving. The idea of the immortality of the soul is based on the humanity's indomitable spirit, but the idea of the resurrection of the body is based on our experience of God's unspeakable love. In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would give us faith and that you would give us confidence, that you would give us hope to believe where we have not yet seen, that our bodies, just as Christ's body, will be resurrected, will be given their lives back again. God, we know that death is the great enemy, and we know that you have conquered death in the life and love and victory of Christ. May we know this truth in our lives, and may we live according to it. All of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.